This is the UK Energy Research Centre podcast. Hello, I'm Rob Gross, Director of the UK Energy Research Centre. And on the podcast today, I've got Emma Piercy from the Food and Drinks Federation and Laith Witwam from the Aldersgate Group. I'll ask them both to explain a bit more about themselves and what their organisations and what they do in a moment. Today's conversation is going to be around industry energy prices and the impact of the, the energy crisis on different industrial sectors. So, so Emma, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself and say a bit about, about what you do? Yes, of course. So yes, my name's Emma Piercy. I lead on energy and climate change at the Food and Drink Federation. The Food and Drink Federation is the largest trade body representing food and drink manufacturers in the UK. In fact, a very good fact which you may not know, so food and drink manufacturing in terms of turnover is is larger than sort of automotive and aviation combined. So so a huge sector for in, in, in terms of the, the economy. My personal background, I have been in energy the whole of my career, moving to food and drink about three years ago now. So quite a breadth of experience. But now within this role, folks have the energy focus, but also more widely on sort of climate change and wider sustainability issues. So that, that's me. Laith, tell us about the Aldersgate Group and, and yourself. Great, thanks, Rob. So I'm Leith Whitwam. I'm a senior policy officer at the Aldersgate Group, and I lead the group's work on industrial decarbonisation, which inevitably leads me to also be working on industry and things like carbon pricing as well, but also looking more broadly at manufacturing and a little bit actually at, at food and drink as well. The Aldersgate Group itself, many people probably won't know us, is an alliance of businesses, NGOs, and academic institutions. And our business membership consists of over 60 companies, all leading in their sectors. The idea is that we have representation across the economy. And so together, our business members have an annual turnover of around 550 billion pounds. So they rec- you know, represent a, a vast weight of the business community. And what we do is produce independent research that builds on the expertise of our membership, looking at a range of policy areas, all the way from green finance to nature restoration, to of course the area that I said I work on, industrial decarbonisation. And we work with industry politicians and Whitehall officials to try and really move the dial on progress towards a net zero economy. Great, really, really interesting. So let's jump straight into the, the 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 questions around the current crisis. A lot of the conversation around the energy crisis has focused on households and the the impact of of government policy effectively helping to protect households from from the current very very high wholesale gas prices. But what about different industrial sectors? So we've been hearing more about how they've been affected recently and the withdrawal of support so can you say a bit or maybe maybe start with emma and focus a bit on the food and drinks industry i think we the first observation i say observation to make is that, is that of course there's very much linked some of the cost of living crisis and of course with consumers and households and energy prices because we all need obviously food on our tables and so you know the cost of, of, of food and how energy costs actually fit into that you know really do impact on us so, you know, in looking at manufacturers and how much energy is is part of their operating costs, just over the one year, so back from, say, let's say, quarter three, 21, energy represented 12% of operating costs. But by quarter three of 2022, had shot up to 20 You know, a good, I would say, 20% of large manufacturers 
saying that energy now accounts to 40 to 50% of their costs. So, you know, we're talking here about this massive increase. And this is on top of general cost increases resulting from the war in Ukraine, whether it's ingredient shortages, you know, I'm just thinking like grain and, and sunflower as examples, you know, on, on top of costs from, from Brexit as well. So we've got a lot of pressures here with energy in the short term, you know, with massive volatility. And this is this is causing quite, you know, se- severe challenges. Just clarify for us what the situation is with the the, the, the government support regime. So does it cover all of and I'll bring Lathan on this as well in a moment, but does it cover up all of your members and when ex- what exactly are they doing with it now? When is it going to be withdrawn? Yes, so we the, the current scheme, the energy business sort of, uh, well, the, the relief scheme is currently going to be phased out at the end of March. So this will be replaced by the energy bill discount scheme. And, you know, we're very thankful that, you know, whilst the, the level of support is, is going down, um, most of food and drink will still be classified as as energy intensive, so they will get a, a greater number of support, although less than before. However, we are concerned that there are a number of subsectors which have not been classified as that. So, for example, uh, coffee manufacturing, where you know, and like at one site, for example, energy is about forty percent of the operating costs, and they have been excluded from the scheme, even though they're one of the most energy intensive. Pet foods is also highly energy intensive. Uh, and so got some some funny decisions, you know, in, in what's been put out last week. So we're working with government on those to see if we can get those rectified. But on the whole, it's been good news. And I think this new scheme that will run from April for one year will definitely, you know, help businesses with, you know, a bit more, let's say, predictability, a bit more foresight, you know, over this coming year to, you know, to help with business planning. Albeit, you know, there's the this is less and this, you know, it's difficult. None of us can predict, of course, what's going to be happening with Russia and Ukraine. And this scheme is not the same as before. The level of support here, we knew it would go down. So there is still some uncertainty there. But you know, on the whole, it's 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 positive news. Leith, I'll bring you in to ask you kind of the same question. I'm aware that the Aldersgate Group has had a focus on high industrial energy prices even before the uh, the, the current crisis and I remember some work that you were doing on how you might access the lower price of electricity that might be available from renewables but give me a, give me a sense of, of your take on the, the current context, the current schemes, the future, how it's affecting your members. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think First off, obviously, it's right for the government to have been focusing on households, but we shouldn't underestimate just how badly industry has been hit. Like Emma was saying, for many, not all, but for many businesses, a lot of support will will fall away in April. And that intense pressure of high gas prices, because it is gas that's ultimately driving the energy crisis, will continue to hit businesses really, really hard. In terms of those worst hit, especially given that we're talking about industry today, it's no surprise that it's energy intensive so you know your steel makers the cement sector ceramics glass and the reason for that's fairly simple they require enormous amounts of energy to heat melt form assemble and transport products and materials and at the current wholesale price and the way that many companies haven't really been able to to hedge beforehand when prices were a little bit low many of these companies yeah are going to continue to see the energy crisis hit them pretty pretty hard in terms of industrials 
we've already seen over the last 18 months some pretty severe impacts of this. So I think in the steel sector, the most obvious example would be Liberty Steel, who have had to at times pause production for weeks on end. And most recently, you might have seen that they're also talking about more long-term closures that might result in in job losses. So, you know, the impact is is really quite real. But I think, you know, one thing to, to look at is the fact that help is at hand in the form of renewable power. So I also don't want to underplay the amount of support that's also often also on hand from government as well. But what we've been looking at is trying to get the declining cost of renewable energy pulled through to industrial and household consumers. And that's one thing that is really positive about the transition to net zero, which is that renewable energy has now for quite some time been been falling. But one of the issues that we have in the UK and the situation similar in Europe and elsewhere is that for the majority of the time, the price we pay for our electricity is set by gas. So Rob, you mentioned that we've been doing some research with UCL and what that showed is that despite making up less than half of our electricity generation, gas sets the price of electricity 84% of the time, which is a, a huge, huge percentage. It might even be a little bit higher. And that's even when renewables are generating electricity. So what we think the government needs to do as a priority is continue to roll out renewable power to help increase energy security, but also try to look at the consultation they recently held on how markets are arranged and use that to decouple gas and electricity prices so that we're actually realising the benefits of cheaper renewable energy. May I just jump in there? I just wanted to comment on you know some of the, the those wider industrial impacts that, that you mentioned there, Leigh. So it, it's quite interesting then that actually for food and drink, actually we feel those too because, for example, fertilisers. So you know when we look at you know the impacts on 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 farm production and you know and the cost of ingredients for us, of course they're going up. One of the reasons are those agricultural commodities and resulting from also from the increased transport costs, uh, fertilizer costs. And with fertilizer, of course, is that, you know, one of the additional products from that is the generation of CO2 for food and drink use. So whether it being through for, for packaging or, you know, or for, or for meat processing. And so, you know, these the CO2 supply has been a big issue for food and drink over the last couple of years at different pockets of time. So, you know, these industries are, are very much... You know, they've got a lot of deep connections, which are not perhaps visible on the surface, which is really interesting. But that kind of separately then, because you went on to talk about the renewable elements, certainly we have we have seen more interest. I mean, of course, there's always been interest in, you know, in, in the, you know, reducing the carbon footprint of um, our manufacturers' operations. And a lot of our members are already invested in, in these technologies. But actually, we're now seeing that, in a sense, that additional business case as well, because in it, it will help to, you know, reduce that volatility, that exposure, you know, to those to those gas prices that you talked about. So, yeah, so, some really, really interesting points there. We, we'll, we'll come back to that. I think the, the opportunity to think about how we change electricity markets so that we can access cheaper Renewable power is something that UKIRK's got form on as as well, but let's just keep a, a bit of a focus on the, the the kind of industrial support mechanisms at first, and then we'll come on to the longer term decarbonisation strategy of which more renewables is obviously part but not whole. Is the government doing enough 
Is the government, I mean, Emma, you seem to suggest to me that you thought that it was being a bit, I don't know quite what the word is, piecemeal or cherry picking or supporting some industries without necessarily any coherence as to Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is rather odd because in this new business, in this new discount scheme from April, for example, you, you have energy intensity a classification for fresh cakes, but you don't have that for preserved cakes, as as one example. So that there are some strange anomalies. But anyway, as sort of a, a sign from that, I think, you know, when it comes to government policy and 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 cherry picking, I hope I hope that's not the case. I do think, as an example, when we look at climate change agreements and. The, the review, in a sense, that's underway on looking at a successor scheme, potentially to be in place from, from the end of this year, you know, we we hope that that will, you know, continue as it, as it currently stands in terms of eligibility, because this is, you know, a key policy aim that's, that's been around for many years, which is, you know, has been quite successful. So, and, and you know, it shouldn't be reduced. And, and it, yet at the same time, of course, you know, we understand the, the pressures on government, as we see with the energy sports schemes, for, for value for money. But at the end of the day, you have to look at these things very, very much holistically. And, and also what this means for the consumers, what it means, what it means for jobs, what it means for the development of a, of a green economy as well. And, you know, that transition, because you need that supportive policy and regulatory framework in place in order to build upon. And that consistency and investor certainty is essential so we, we mustn't forget these things you know as we as we continue to develop that or as the policy framework continues to evolve i mean who would have thought when we were talking about the industrial decarbonization strategy back in 2021 i guess when that would have been published that the government would be subsidizing both industrial and domestic energy consumption to the tune of tens of billions mm. of pounds per year so maybe we should just move on to think about a slightly longer term framing and the, de- the decarbonization strategy that i've just mentioned we've seen the skidmore review so the, the the review that was commissioned by one of our previous prime ministers to review the, the economic benefits that we should be trying to achieve from, from the decarbonisation agenda. We'll come back to that. But for, I'm going to start with Leith and ask about the government's approach to do industrial decarbonisation to date. Has it been adequate? Would it rise to the challenge? We've got this twin challenge now, I suppose, of high prices and decarbonisation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I can start with the the slightly more positive. I think what we have seen in the UK, you mentioned the industrial decarbonisation strategy We've also had the net zero and hydrogen strategies as well, although I know one is undergoing a, a legal challenge at the moment. But, you know, some of the positives we do have are some world-leading commitments and pledges. You know, we've had targets to reduce industrial emissions that are strong. We've seen government announce ambitions for four low-carbon industrial clusters by 2030, a net zero cluster by 2040. And we've also been vocal on decarbonizing the grid so you know our commitment to to decarbonizing the grid by 2035 is incredibly ambitious then digging into some of the detail you get the uk emissions trading scheme and there's proposals that government's due to respond to about implementing a more ambitious cap on emissions and that includes most industrial players and and many of them as members as well. What that does is set a clear ambition for emissions reductions in industry. I think what we're lacking though is building on that and seeing delivery, coordination and implementation of policy. So 
yeah, I think we're fairly far behind now other comparable countries in terms of public funding. I'm sure at some point we'll probably talk about what's happening in the, the US and the EU, but some comparable nations like France, Sweden and Germany are all piling in a lot of money into their domestic industries. But also we need to look elsewhere. There's, you know, not one silver bullet when it comes to policy. A lot of policies are focused on supply side mechanisms. So that might be things like embedding greater resource efficiency and energy efficiency into production processes, trying to switch from gas to electricity or, or green hydrogen. But I think what we now need to see is a much more coordinated approach between policies such as those, demand side policies, things where we can really show that there's a clear market for low carbon goods. And also some of that investor confidence that's affected by the broader suite of measures that are aimed at supporting industry. Because things like Emma said earlier on, the case that we need to make is that the UK is an attractive place to invest and establish these industries. And that requires doing a little bit of everything, but it all has to be joined up and delivered together. So I think, you know, that's one thing that we haven't done quite so well in the UK is build on those ambitious targets and really get the policy detail in there in a coordinated manner. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I th- and I think one example of that, you know, relating back to these climate change agreements, is that, you know, we, they are focused around the energy efficiency. Now, of course, energy efficiency is, is a first priority, low-hanging fruit in policy terms. But when we start to talk about carbon targets, and given, given how much improvements have already taken place in energy efficiency, what we really would like to see is a carbon reduction element included in a new scheme, because otherwise you can get perverse policy outcomes. Because you know you talked about late, you know, fuel switching, for example. Say, say for example, a, a biomass boiler being being put being put into to a site. So carbon reduction savings, yet the efficiency is not as perhaps good as with gas. So currently in that kind of in the climate change schemes, you'd be penalised for that. So we really need to, as you say, get get a, a policy frame that irons out some of these inconsistencies to really, you know, be fit for the future and, and, and that focus on, on a net zero target. Like you mentioned other countries piling money in. I mean, to a certain extent, the, the, or to a significant extent, the, the UK government has been piling money in. Have those countries, and I'm thinking maybe answered first, thinking about other countries in, elsewhere in Europe, so the financial support that they've been providing has been less about bailing them out of the immediate crisis and more about the longer term? Or Yeah, so I think what we've seen is that in other countries, support has been a bit more targeted and has been a bit more about developing specific decarbonisation pathways or options. So it might be looking at launching hydrogen-based steelmaking in Sweden. We've had similar sort of steel investments made in in Spain and outside of Europe in Canada to an extensive degree. You're right in saying that there has been funding in the UK. I certainly wouldn't want to underplay the amount of money that has been been put up. But I think when we talk to industry, um, we talk to sectors across heavy industry from steel, cement, glass, ceramics and beyond. One of the issues that we have in the UK is that there's lots of different funding pots, you know, 50 million here, 100 million there. And okay, those sound like big, big sums. But when you look at the scale of investment that's needed, it's uh, it's quite difficult for companies to access that funding. The other side of it, and it sounds a little bit boring, but is that there's a big administrative burden to actually apply for all of these different rounds of funding here, there and everywhere. So I think even 
large companies that we talk to say this is a real problem for them. And what would make a lot more difference in terms of moving the dial on scaling up this new technology is having, like I said before, much more coordination in funding so that it's, you know, sitting in single parts or is really prove new technologies at scale. And I think one of the great things about industrial decarbonization is that it's less of a question. It's not really a case of where we're figuring out what we need to do. We kind of know already how we decarbonize many of these sectors. Not 100%, you know, I don't want to be naive, but we know that we need to electrify or we need to switch to hydrogen or we need to apply carbon capture or something like that. Issue is exactly how we get there and how we can really make a really good business case for investing in these solutions. And if we can do that, then we can unlock decarbonization and all of the economic opportunities that would flow from it. Right. So I'm going to try and paraphrase that, put it to Emma. The sums of money that are available are, are too small, almost the wrong order of magnitude, and it's too complicated. It's certainly not enough. I mean, I, I think what one, in a sense, charge that has been put out is that all the, the money that was involved in, in previous schemes you know, which, which you know, for example, like RHI or, or FITS or others, that when you look at what's what's replaced them, it's, it's not perhaps quite at the same magnitude. So that's one thing. So, you know, the, the IETF, for example, really, you know, great scheme. We need more of it and we need it to be over a, a longer period. I think, in, indeed, you know, that there are challenges with applications yes they are but they're not insurmountable you know we do have food and drink manufacturers who've been successful under those schemes but but it does take time and it takes that knowledge and capacity to be able to put those applications in you know and to you know come up with partners so there is let's say a supporting framework which is really essential to be to be able to get these off the ground and i think a particular challenge for food and drink manufacturing is that it's also a dispersed manufacturing piece. So that, that means, you know, it's outside of the industrial clusters. So, you know, that and also 96, 97% of manufacturers are SMEs. So the challenges of, of getting these, you know, companies to, to decarbonize, it, it presents a whole new set of, let's say, dynamics and, you know, access to information and skills and, you know, that capacity to be able to take this forward. So, we do have to make things as easy as possible. And, you know, I think Nate's point about, you know, uh, sort of knowing what we need to do. Well, I think from a UK perspective, yes, yes, we do. As you say, it's like, well, with food manufacturing, uh, the electrification of heat will be the, the, the main way of decarbonising heat. Yet this is going to be heavily reliant on, therefore, on the grid. So we need all, the, all, all that grid infrastructure. So then, you know, then you start to start to uncover the complexity around you know the investment you know in in the distribution networks and etc to to get that and so that that that's when it you then start to maybe start to get a little bit of a hiatus or yeah Nath, what i mean what do you think on that yeah i couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and i think this really highlights everything that i tried to get at when talking about this coordinated approach you know we have electrification and fuel switching and resource efficiency here but just like emma said that also means that we need to be thinking about at the same time exactly what is happening with grid development. And that point around the disparity between clusters and dispersed sites is really crucial. So industrial clusters are an amazing place to scale up technology. They're a great place to showcase technology. And I can see why government is really 
really hitting those hard. And, you know, it's it's a good thing to be doing. And I hope that it continues with full force. But 50% of our industrial emissions come from dispersed sites. And they employ a hell of a lot of people and contribute a lot of value to our economy as well. Not just in the heavy industries, but all sectors that they serve. Emma spoke earlier about how the heavy industries serve a lot of food and drink organizations. Same is true for construction and, and all sorts of others. But there is that unique challenge. And part of it is it's geographical. You know, it's going to be difficult to build hydrogen pipelines and carbon transport and storage and in, indeed to develop the electricity network and grids in those areas. So again, it's something that we need to see across the board with policy development here is that level of coordination between all of these various different areas so that everything moves forward at once. And, and of course, this does impact the ability of, of manufacturers themselves to be able to make those decisions on what to invest in. So do you invest in a hydrogen-ready boiler or do you invest in alternative solutions? Because you know, with the challenges of, therefore, grid electrification and, and in the additional investment there, actually, you know, maybe for some, they will look at decarbonized gas. So, you know, utilizing the existing gas system and, and maybe blending over time. So, you know, th- these challenges and the fact that we don't have 100% of answers at the moment means it's difficult for for sites to invest one of the things that brings to mind for me is the importance of of clarity over the infrastructural changes that 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 will be needed and when just just to explain maybe to to some listeners that the focus on clusters the idea there is that some parts of, of of the uk for example in the northeast of england or in south wales have a cluster of industry that could be decarbonized i think the idea quite often there is to use carbon capture and storage or the delivery of hydrogen uh, to decarbonize a bunch of industries that are all near each other. And Newkirk also has a focus on the dispersed sites as part of our research program because, for the very reasons you've described, is it you know the, the clusters only get about half half of the story, and we need clarity over the, the kind of infrastructure that's going to help with the other half. But there's lots of things here that we could spend a great deal more time talking about. But there's actually one external thing that I'd like to bring into the conversation and I'll see if Nate has any thoughts on this in particular and if Emma wants to to chip in. It, in the States, this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act, which isn't which is an inflation reduction piece of legislation, but it's also a massive amount of additional subsidy and tax breaks for green stuff, clean tech. And uh, we hear that it's pulling investment away from Europe. Any thoughts on, on is that a game changer? I think that it presents a sort of important moment, definitely. And I think there is a real worry that the UK isn't keeping pace. In the EU, we've already seen some rumblings of a response in terms of fiscal intervention and, and all sorts. And I've mentioned a little bit about what's happening in other countries in terms of that scale of funding that might not be matched in the UK. But I suppose there's one thing to keep in mind, which is that within the Inflation Reduction Act, there's not all that much policy sitting underneath it. And so I've spoken a lot about funding, but now let's speak about the opposite, which is that none of these things exist in isolation. And actually, you need all of the sort of policy mechanisms that can support supply of low-carbon products, that can create demand for low-carbon products as well, to really make a cohesive investment framework. You know, If you want to attract that investment into the UK, the US, or wherever it might be, then the business case has to be really strong. 
And that's one thing that we are good at doing in the UK is this is this policy development. It just needs to be implemented and, and delivered in a much clearer way and matched with 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 some public support in, in that sense. So, you know, I completely understand and agree with the anxieties around investment being drawn elsewhere. And what we need to see with the low carbon industries that we could get in the UK is that we have a potential comparative advantage, but there's a window of opportunity. So we've known that for many, many years, we struggle to compete with high carbon, cheap imports where our strengths might lie because we have fantastic universities, fantastic research development and so on is in this transition to producing green net zero products that are ultimately going to be the products of the future. These are what we need. We need green steel and cement for low carbon energy and energy efficient buildings, electric vehicles and so on. But the anxiety is that we need to make sure we don't miss the window of opportunity. And that's where, you know, some of this upfront expenditure might need to come in, but also just laying the groundwork so that on the whole, if you step back, that framework for investment is looking really, really strong. And part of that does mean doing what we can do to reduce industrial energy prices as well, because that's a big part if you're an international organization looking at your portfolio and where you want to put your investment. What is the the, the business case for, say, investing in an electric arc furnace if you're a steelmaker? uses a huge amount of electricity and, and that's part of it as well. So you know, I think looking at the US Inflation Reduction Act, it's right to to recognise the anxieties and to to sort of question whether the UK is keeping pace. But what we should also look at is all of the policy that does need to underpin these public expenditure frameworks. Right, right. Makes a lot of sense. Emma? Yeah, I mean, I know in a sense I'm going to slightly divert the conversation now, but in terms of this windows of opportunity uh, and building investment, I think... I think we can actually create new windows of, of opportunity. And this is where I'll have a slight, a slight diversion, and that is in regards to nature restoration and biodiversity. So it, over the last year, I think it was last summer, the Financing UK Nature Recovery Initiative published a report around development of, in, well, effectively environmental markets. Now, they perceive that over the next 10 years, there's a funding gap up to about £40 billion. So, you know, I know it's a different example, but nevertheless, you know, we can find opportunities, but how we therefore then create that that solid, you know, framework upon which to, to enable these to happen, that is going to be the key question. I suppose that is, again, another an analogy with the with what you've just been discussing, the, the Inflation Act, is that, you know, we, we have this summer, for example, we're, we're getting this land use framework from DEFRA, you know, which, you know, we've also seen in Chris Goodmore's Net Zero Strategy. Now, we need to have that land use framework to, to set that baseline upon which we can build. But, you know, as you say, you need multitude of, of things to work together and, you know, and this momentum to build because you can have any one of these things in place, but you need more to really get them going. I'm in favour of nature restoration. I'm sure it sounds great, but it sounds probably much more difficult than than than, than it might seem on the surface. Lake, do you wanted to come back in on that? Yeah, I just wanted to say completely agree with with Emma, and just very quickly mention that I think that was one of the things that was great to see in the Skidmore review. That very clear message that in order to seize the opportunity of the century in the transition to net zero, we need ambitious, well designed environmental regulation, and I think. When we speak to all of our business members and many, many businesses outside of our membership, the overwhelming message 
is that we're moving away from this red tape narrative to you know good, smart, ambitious regulation being key to attracting business to the UK. Which and the, and the Skidmore review, just very briefly, Emma, do, do you broadly agree with with that the the characterisation as huge opportunities that need to be put up? Yeah, yes, I do, and, and and I think one of the things that I quite liked about the and and the report itself is that you, you know you didn't have let's say sectors of the economy sort of singled out, and because we find, for example, with food that of course it's something that is very systemic from farm to fork. So you can't pigeonhole it into manufacturing or to or just to, to transport. It covers the whole lot. So I, I quite liked that approach, actually, in, in the whole report. And I think, you know, you know, when looking at the recommendations, um, you know, I would have to agree with what they put in there. So, for example, around, you know, delivering on the Green Jobs Task Force. There is this phrase, which we all hear about now, that, you know, every job is a climate job. And, and that's true, actually, you know, if, if we're going to take these opportunities going forward. You know, recommendations around, you know, procurement, the recycling, the land use framework, development of environmental markets, you know, the recording of, of, of emissions, you know, and, and looking at scope three emissions. So this is, you know, outside of effectively the energy use that you have on site. All these are, are really important for taking forward. I probably would say, at least from my angle, I don't think that there's that there was perhaps a lot of new things in there. But I think it's really helpful in bringing it all together and just you know again helping to maintain let's and let's hope increase that momentum and actually delivering all some of these things. Yeah, it was very much a get on with it message, wasn't yeah. it? We could spend much more time on all of these issues, but I think we're going to have to close there. So Emma Piercy from the Food and Drink Federation, Leith with Wham from the Aldersgate Group. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. To find out more about UKERC, you can visit our website at www.ukerc.ac.uk.